Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. As we go under the teaching of God's Word, we're going to go to the Old Testament. We're going to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21. We are in a series right now of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he is dealing with citizens of his kingdom. And so we're going to step out of Matthew's gospel and have a message that has much application for those who would be citizens of heaven. The question right now that is raging is whose side are you on? I mean, whose side are you on? Are you on my side? Am I on your side? You want to really throw a, a wrench into any family gathering or any, you know, work uh, round table is just either there's two extremes, you know, put, put on a red mega hat or put on a black t-shirt that says Black Lives Matter. And you're going to find out where people stand and what's in the heart. At the outset of this message, I think we can all agree that as citizens of the nation that we live in, we long for this nation to be great, but there's a condition to that. And the condition to that, the asterisk, the footnote is, greatness as defined by whom? Greatness as defined by God? Absolutely. We can all agree to that. Do black lives matter? Absolutely. Every life matters, and that's not to diminish anyone. Now, if you look at the extremes, and then you take at face value what those who are on the extreme ends, and then you look at, you know, what does a movement purport? What do they believe? What do they teach? We cannot embrace what the technical foundation, the organization, Black Lives Matter, what they put on their website. We do not embrace that, and the scriptures will deal with that even today. But as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if Jesus is our king, then, beloved, there's going to be something refreshingly different about us. Is that said of us right now as believers? Is God for the Democrats? Is God for the Republicans or those who might be independent? Say, hey, God isn't on either of those sides. He's independent. Just look down through the ages of you know, history. Look down through the pages of Scripture, and you'll see that God, his men stayed alone so many times. In Joshua chapter 5, a text that we were in not long ago in one of our sermons, Joshua was out doing some survey work before they went in and conquered Jericho. In Joshua 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, here's the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? And he said, verse 14, no. <laughs> no. 
but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? A kingdom citizen's response sounds like that. It looks like that. You for us or you for our enemies? And the Lord over creation and earth says, no. I am the Lord of, the commander of, the army of the Lord. So like Joshua We often are asking the wrong question. Is God on my side? Is God on my political party side? Is he on my side? He's on my side. It's like two teams, you know, I used to play in church basketball leagues. And and both both sides are praying, Lord, you know, help us to win this game. And they're over there praying, Lord, help us. We know you're on our side. You know, I did remember to give in the offering last week. I know you're going to help us win this game tonight. Lord, you on our side? No. Can't reduce me down to those little things like that. The question for us, beloved, is this. Are we on God's side? That's the question. Are we on God's side? As we approach the election of our next president, less than a week and a half away, it's obvious, isn't it, that we're living in a severely divided time. There is, as portrayed in the video, chaos everywhere. It's time for us to live out what God has called us to do. It's time for us to engage this present darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does this happen? The title of the sermon is God is in Control. God is in Control. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, my citizens, it's, it's upside down. It's life that is upside down. To borrow from the time of Esther, when the people of God were threatened by wicked Haman's plan, and Esther's uncle Mordecai received the word, and he came and said, you have to go into the king. And he challenged her with those words Who knows if you weren't born for such a time as this? Beloved, we are here for a reason. You and I are walking planet Earth right now today in this moment for a reason, a divine purpose. It's best for us to be here right now. We don't sound we, we ought not sound, I maybe better say it this way, like the people were constantly wanting revived the yesteryear. The, oh, back in the good old days, you remember when, and, and we go back, and oh, when it was, it really wasn't that good back then. But our minds have a way of editing out things and retelling the story of history. There's always been suffering and trials and difficulty. It's best for us to be here right now, living right now when we live for the glory of God. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, the word of God says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. 
He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is the word of God. We're living in a time of uncertainty, and so here I want, this is right here, full disclosure. What, what is my aim? What's my motive in this sermon? For every listener, for those who are here in the first service, for those here in the second service, for those who are joining online, it's right here. This is what it is. That in times of uncertainty, that disciples of Christ, how? How will we leverage every single opportunity and not lose our testimony? How will we leverage every single opportunity? So now I'm, I'm, we're dealing with an, an approaching election, but it's not just about an election. It's about every aspect that happens in our lives. Opportunity. Opportunity to leverage for the glory of God or lose our testimony. And these happen moment by moment, day by day, situation by situation. That's where we're going in this message. It's a straightforward message. It's a simple message, but it's a really hard message. It's a humanly impossible message. So you be praying for me as I preach. The Lord graciously sustain my voice in the first hour, and I'm praying that he does in this hour as well. How are we gonna do this? How will we leverage every opportunity and not lose our testimony? Number one, rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. What does this look like? What does it look like if I rest in God's sovereignty? It means I trust the Lord. It means you trust the Lord. You may not see what he's doing. Oftentimes we don't. We don't know what he's doing, but we trust him. And to rest in his sovereignty is to be at home. It's to, to sit down in, to get comfortable with, to rest in the sovereignty of the Lord. Trust him. Trust him. There's a divine claim made in this verse. It's a big claim. A divine claim is this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, kings here on earth, we, we don't live in a land that's ruled by a monarch, by a king. If, you, if we did, and that king could do whatever, the king is sovereign. No one, no one tells the king what to do, and he doesn't have to ask permission. He can ask counsel, but a king doesn't ask anyone's permission. If you live under a good king, it's good for the people. If you live under a bad king and you hear this claim that God says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in my hand and I turn it wherever I want it to go. That's a big claim. It's a straightforward. It's saying God is the king of kings and he holds the ultimate power. And so the illustration is simply this. And it's so simple and straightforward that here we are washing our hands all the time, right? Wash your hands, wash your hands. 20 seconds, soap and water. I used to have an issue with guys that would leave the restroom and not wash their hands. Now I really have an issue. And I have a you know, virus that I can be like, hey, virus spreader over there, didn't wash his hands. You know, Make sure you get that guy. Aisle three, non-hand washer, right there, get him. Attack, you know. That's real meekness, by the way. No, it's not. But uh, I'm... This is what the Lord is saying. Water in the hand of the Lord, I can't even pour it 
and wherever I want it to go, that is of the weightiest people on earth. And the Lord says, that's how much weight they have in my hand. Every time that you're washing your hands, take your hand and channel the water. Now, unless you're using a power sprayer, like my neighbor, that's a little different. Power, you get too close to the power sprayer, it can do damage. Water, a stream flowing in a hand, that's what the Lord says. The weightiest people on earth, that's what they're like. Wherever I want them to go, that's where they're going. God is sovereign. You say, well, that is a big claim. It is a big claim. So we probably need some evidence to back this claim up. So there's historical evidence for this, and we look to Scripture. Four examples this morning, Pharaoh versus Moses God. That did not go well for Pharaoh, his family, or his nation. That wasn't a contest, an arm wrestling match. That Oh, it looks really close. Pharaoh's coming back. That was God's grace and mercy and wrath poured out in a small glimpse that we will see in a small way in Egypt what the end of the world will face. And no movie producer can bring about what will happen when this earth is tried by fire. Now, Pharaoh's heart in Exodus was hardened by the Lord. That's God's sovereignty. Exodus 4 and verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, remember we talked about that last week, Moses, the meekest man on earth, 40 years in shepherd school out in the wilderness. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. All right, Lord, I'll do that. What's going to happen? But I will, what's the word? Harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. That's the sovereignty of God. But then the Lord says this. In Exodus 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. There's two things going on here. There's the sovereignty of God, and the Lord tells, tells Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to take out the best, the strongest power that this world has, and I'm going to take him to the limit. I'm going to take him to the edge. I'm going to harden his heart. But in the human responsibility, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Make no mistake, beloved, Pharaoh did not walk around like a zombie. The Lord has hardened my heart. I will not let the people go. I would, but I can't because the Lord has hardened my heart. Now, the Egyptians, they had this belief. Hardened heart can also be a heavy heart. And they believed if you died with a heavy heart, it would like sink you in the afterlife. It would take you down. And so that's why and I, years ago I shared with you in Egypt, they would go around at parties and they would have a small mummy in a casket and they would tell people, drink up, drink up, drink up. This is the end. This is where you're going. You're just going in a casket. No Cast off all restraint. Cast off New Lord, you know, Mardi Gras, Las Vegas. Cast it all off. Whatever you want to do, lift up your heart. Brighten up your heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man two parallel truths. I can't bring that down and put it into some easy, there you go, and now you can, ah, oh, thank you, Pastor. Now I understand that so well. God is sovereign, 
And beloved, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to respond to this God. Nebuchadnezzar went up against Daniel's God in Daniel chapter 4. That didn't go well for him either. Daniel chapter 4, if you have your Bible, will you turn there? It's to the right of Proverbs. Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and he calls in those who would be able to interpret the dream. And the Lord gives to Daniel the interpretation of the dream. And it says in verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, (laughs) Belteshazzar, say that too much, people say, bless you, Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. Then the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, I can't say it now, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, I should just say Daniel, answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. It is you. O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded, to leave the stump of the foot of, of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, now here you hear, hear the heart of a preacher, a prophet. You hear him saying, listen to the word and calling for a change, for repentance. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Change your ways, king. Change your ways. Humble yourself. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time, seven years, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, eagle's feathers, and, as, and his nails were like bird's claws. What's going on? He has gone insane. He's lost his mind, but he's still the king. Now listen to the king seven years later. It switches to his voice, to him speaking. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor, returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. Do you see that? I was established. It's not an I, I reestablished myself. I was established in my k- kingdom, and still more greatness was not acquired by me, conquered by me, was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, let me tell you, listen to me. He is able to humble, to put down. Evidence, it's replete in history. Then we see Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia, enemies of Israel surrounding the temple, and they were rebuilding. They were back. They were back from exile, and the enemies were stopping the building progress. What do you think you're doing? We're building. We were sent here to build. You can't build, and letters were sent back to the king, to Artaxerxes. You can't trust these people. They're going to reestablish this temple and then they're going to defect from you. They're going to leave you. They're going to turn their back on you. And he says, stop the work. We're going to check this out. So they did. They went back into the records of the kings and they found what Cyrus had raised up. Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus long before he was ever born. My servant Cyrus And Cyrus did exactly what the Lord had prescribed for him long before he was ever born. And Darius and Artaxerxes, and when they searched the record, they realized all those who were attacking the people of God, you're out of line. And thank you for calling our attention that not only are they entitled to build the building, but actually we're supposed to be financing the building of this building. 
So what those enemies meant for evil, listen to me, church. I've listened to quite a bit down through the years of this church not being able to progress and move forward and be effective in the master's hand in this area. What they meant for evil, God said, give it to me. Trust me with your trial. And the king did his homework and said, wow, not only are we just going to say hands off, but here's my bank account and we'll pay for the work. Who's behind that scene? Well, they recognized it in Ezra 6.22. I encourage you to read Ezra 6. You'll see the whole account. I'm just going to read this verse. And when they're celebrating this building dedication, the rebuilding of the temple, they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful Notice they didn't go get joy for themselves. It didn't come through just drinking up at a party. The Lord gave them the joy, and this is what they say, had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Dad, how did it happen? How did it change? I thought we couldn't build a temple. How are we building this temple? Where did this come from? Son, let me tell you something. Sit down a moment. The Lord turned the heart of the pagan king. Oh, we serve the God of gods, don't we? We serve the king of kings, don't we, Dad? Yes, we do, son. And this is evidence of his working in our lives. You can trust him so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. Which God is this? The God of Israel. Son, he's our God. Family, let's worship the God who turns the heart of the kings and emperors, and presidents, and governors, and mayors. Let's worship him. The fourth witness to the stand to be King Herod in, that, in Acts chapter 12. Again, we don't have time to read this. You can find that account. Acts chapter 12, it begins with James, the brother of John, was beheaded. And Herod's polls in the, in the Jewish people and in the local community went up. They were pleased with him murdering James, the brother of John. So he arrested Peter. And after the feast, he was going to have Peter. Next morning, you're up. Execution's coming. That night, the church was praying. We don't know what they were doing before James's execution, before his death. But the night before Peter was supposed to die, the church was gathered. They were praying. An angel of the Lord comes to the prison and wakes Peter up. Hey, Peter, get up, get up, get up, get up. Get your clothes on. You're getting out of here. Jailbreak, here we go. Prison break, here we go. Come on. Wake up, let's go. Peter gets up, puts his clothes on. He's released from the, jail, the, the soldiers he was chained to. Prison doors are open. He's out into the street called straight. There he is, and he comes to his senses like, this is real, I'm not dreaming. He makes his way to where the church is praying, knocks on the door. Teenager answers the door. Comes back, Peter's outside. Shh, we're praying. Don't you know Peter's about to die? Be quiet. Where's the youth pastor anyway? Quiet the kids down. Come on. And where are our kids? I want our kids in here worshiping with us, right? Hearing the word of the Lord. And the kids are like, come on. You know, what are you doing? No, really. Peter's outside. They let him in and they're like, oh, he's alive. And he's like, shh, calm down. You're making a ruckus. God answers prayer. And the next morning, Herod says, I'm the king. Bring Peter. It's his day to die. And they said, no, I'm sorry, king. We lost Peter. 
What do you mean you lost Peter? Four squads of soldiers? How'd you lose Peter? Then everybody gets Peter's sentence. And he left angry and he went down to Caesarea Philippi and he goes down to a community that was, that was, there was a relationship breach between those communities. Caesarea Philippi, depending on King Herod in Acts 12. And so when he came and he comes near and he's angry, they're like, oh great, king's angry, not gonna go well. We're already in the doghouse with the king. And so he gives to them a speech and whatever he said, it didn't even matter. Because the people were chanting out, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Voice of a God, not of a man. And he was just drinking in the praise, drinking in the adoration, drinking in the worship. That's right, I'm the man, I'm the man. And an angel struck him with worms and he died. Acts 12 begins one way and ends in a radically different way. And the word of God that was threatened, like it was, the light was going to go out, the church is going to be extinguished now. No, God's people prayed. And God, the God of heaven, the resurrected Lord Jesus, came down and defended his people before everyone, and the word of God spread. Did you hear those Christians? They don't have a real place to worship in, but their God dwells in the heavens not made with hands. Are you with me, church? This is the God we serve. This is the God of heaven. There's evidence in history that he reigns and he rules, and therefore, there must be a necessary verdict. There's a claim that's been made. There's evidence throughout history, and the verdict comes down to, well, how did they respond? Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Persian kings, and King Herod. How did they respond? For us this morning, it's not so much about how they responded, beloved. It's how will you respond? How have you responded to this king? Have you fallen down like Joshua did on your face before him? Have you surrendered your life to this king who surrendered heaven temporarily to take to himself flesh and humanity? This is what we talked about last Sunday, about being meek. That meekness, Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait, said the psalmist, for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Listen to Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. They will let you down. They will die. The Lord will not. Amen? The Lord will not. So what's your verdict? What is your verdict? Have you surrendered to this king? He made a claim king's heart, like stream water in my hand. I turn it wherever I want it to go. There's evidence that he actually does that, that he reigns over all kings and all kingdoms, over all times and all places and all people. Then what's your verdict? Trust, rest in the sovereignty of God. Secondly, if we are going to leverage every opportunity 
every blessing, every burden, every opportunity to not lose our testimony, then beloved, embrace your personal responsibility. Christians are not fatalists. I had someone tell me that once. Claimed to be a Christian, said, oh, I'm a fatalist. I had to do a little work to understand what he was talking about. You know, whatever will be, will be. No, that's not, that's not Christian. That in God's sovereignty, we're able to then embrace our personal responsibility. What does this look like? Obey the word of God. So here we are at the end of the day. The simple point of this message is trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy or blessed in Jesus than to trust. And how, does it, how do I know if I'm trusting him? Do I obey him? I have no reason to tell anybody or to believe falsely that I'm trusting him if I'm not obeying his word. That's a mirage. It's not real. It's not true. Embrace personal responsibility. All right, so what does this look like then? These divided times that we live in, pray fervently. That's how I embrace. Start with prayer. Start on my knees. Seek God's wisdom. Seek God's help as our lives intersect. And there's three realms of authority that each of us relate to and live out our lives in. There's three. One is the home. It's the family. Marriage. Instituted in Genesis. One man, one woman for life. It's the home. It's instituted by God, so there will not be any amendments to it or changes to it. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for redefining. This is God's plan. He made it. He owns it. He defines it. He blesses it. And everything that is not biblically defined marriage, Hebrews 13, 4, all adulterers, all sex outside of marriage, one man, one woman, for life, God will judge. I'm not your problem. God is. I just deliver the mail and it gets delivered to me first before I deliver it to you. What are you going to do with it? Jesus was asked a question, Matthew 19. They tried to trip him up, tried to trap him. It already worked for John the Baptist dealing with divorce. So his enemies came to him trying to trap him. Matthew 19, verse 3, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Okay, they don't want to know the answer to this. They just want to trap him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read? Have you not read? That he's saying this to religious people. Do you know your Bible? You haven't read your Bible. Let's go back to book one, chapter one. Let's start there. That's what he's saying to them. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Beloved, listen to me. There are people who will say that Jesus never he didn't have a problem with homosexuality. We're dealing with the issue of gender identity right now. Let me just say it from Jesus. Everything that goes against God's institution of marriage hurts people. 
God is loving and he created the environment that is best for people. There is an enemy and the enemy wants to destroy everything that is good. The enemy hates people because we're made in the image of God. So whether someone has been through wrongfully or difficult, painfully through divorce, whether somebody is dealing with issues of homosexuality, if somebody is dealing with issues of gender identity and confusion, understand this, beloved. They're made in the image of God. There's intrinsic value in them. That means they're, they're valuable and worth something independent of what they do. That's the same for you and for me. It has to begin with there's value in every person that we deal with, that we can disagree with them, but we must be loving and kind as we bring to bear what Jesus said. How did he deal with people? Read the Gospel of John. He dealt with them humbly, meekly, tenderly, but he also told them the truth because he loved them. There's the government, there's the home, and then there's the government instituted by God. Instituted by God. Romans 13, we don't have time to read that this morning. We're to submit to authority. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, we're to be subject to governing authorities. We're not to be those who are punished for doing wrong, but if we are punished for doing right, there's no shame in that. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, he wrote, writing to believers, writing to the church, first of all, hey, this is it. This is where we begin. It's so important. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who? What's the main priority of God? It's the God is glorified in the earth who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, beloved. That's God's desire. So whether we're going through an election or suffering or you name it, anything else in there, this is the goal of God, that God is glorified because that is the greatest joy available to man. This is the gospel. Now, if we're ever asked to disobey God, and there are churches right now that governments are, th- are threatening and commanding them to disobey God. Then with Acts chapter 4, we have to obey God. And do you know what the enemies said of the apostles? These men have been with Jesus. They sound like Jesus. They act like Jesus. These are uneducated men. They didn't come through our system and we can't refute them. And the The apostles rejoiced to suffer for the name of Christ. Oh, that we would embrace all that God has for us. In our country, we're part of the governing system. We're part of that. So we have to take this this responsibility seriously. There's the third realm, and it's the church the ecclesia, the called out ones, instituted by Jesus Christ himself to represent him, his kingdom on earth. That's why the message 
as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's either going to draw you in and endear you to your king, or it's going to offend you and push you away. Who does he think he is telling me what to do anyway? That's going to be the response of this message. So as believers, as the body of Christ, we're committed to worship together, to walk together, and to work together. So at our earliest opportunity, we open the doors to come together and be under the teaching of the word of God because we care more about the gospel impacting lives. Listen to me. I can speak for myself. I can't speak for you. I care more about the gospel getting out than I do not getting a disease. I want you to understand that. I am not trying to live at all costs for as long as I can possibly live. I believe that our days, my times, the psalmist says, are set in his hands. So I can be confident in the sovereignty of God in every situation. And it doesn't make it easy and it doesn't make it flippant. But you know how hard it is to do ministry when the church is struggling to regather and the people whose hand was once in the work is not in the work right now across our community and the nation right now. What are we afraid of, beloved? If I'm a child of God, I don't fear death and I don't hasten death and I don't want to die and I'm not morbid, but I trust the living God who gave me life to sustain me for every day that he intends for me to live. And in that confidence, now I can actually breathe because I'm not trying to carry the weight of the world. I can't do it anyway. Neither can you. We're to make disciples of all nations. Oh, may we embrace this. I'm going to skip down to what do we do? Study diligently. Okay, we have, if I'm going to embrace my responsibility, pray fervently, but we're not just going to stay in prayer. We're not just going to stay just praying and we're praying and we're praying. Have you done anything? No, but we're praying and we're praying. We haven't, what have you done? Well, study the issues, right? Do the work of research. Study the issues. Uh, James said, we're going to be quick to hear, slow to speak slow to anger. Most times, I think I get that backwards. I'm, uh, you know, my wife would say, yes, that's right. If she would have said that, I would have had to say, what did you say again? You know, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. All too often, I'm quick to speak, quick to be angry, and what did you say again? Right? Especially when it comes to politics. He said it last week, Barclay, Blessed is the man who's always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. I wish I could tell you that was me. It is not me. I want it to be me. Study the issues. Get to know the candidates. Get to know them. I, there's some questions. There's a, there's a book. Uh, David Platt wrote a book, Before You Vote, and he's just challenging the church to think through these issues carefully. Here's five questions. And he puts it on a couple different pages. Ask this of your party and ask these questions of the opposition parties. Not not just against them and find fault in them, but ask this of both parties. Here's, Here's five questions. I put them together in one. Are there any concepts consistent with or in opposition to biblical justice? In your party, the opposition party, 
Are there any concepts that are consistent with, yeah, that matches Scripture, that goes against Scripture, biblical justice? Think through that. Second question is this, is there concern or perhaps a lack thereof for vulnerable groups or individuals? Do they care about those who are often passed over or do they only care about, what, who, whose group do they care about? Do they show concern for those who are often neglected? In, in Israel's times, it was the stranger and the alien. And the Lord said, you remember you were a stranger and an alien in Egypt. You remember how you were treated? Don't forget that. How will you treat other people? Okay. Thirdly, is there a desire or perhaps a lack of desire for fair creation of and implementation of laws? Your party, the opposition party, Think of this in both sides. Fourthly, do the candidates show evidence of decency, morality, and order? Ask that of your candidate and of the opposition. And let's be reminded, we're not voting on who will be Messiah. There is no perfect person on the ballot, but that doesn't mean that I cannot have serious problems with conversation and conduct on either side of the aisle, right? How are the parties, fifthly and lastly, trying to promote good and prevent evil? How does my party try to promote good and prevent evil? How does the opposing party, how are they trying to do good? Can I see something good in somebody that I disagree with? How are they trying to do what's right and punish what is wrong instead of coming off with the condescending, arrogant perspective, we alone are right. So you're not going to minister to anybody and you don't care about the soul of anybody on the opposition party and you're willing to throw their soul away to hell so that you can get a vote and win an election. We really have to think about how we think and how we talk and how we conduct our lives. View the issues Get to know the candidates in light of Scripture. Let the Scriptures weigh in. And let that rule more than your opinion or your 401k or how your daddy brought you up or whatever it may be. Then, act accordingly. Do something. Make a difference. Pray. Get some wisdom. Study. And do something. Act accordingly. Love God. Love people. Make a difference. Shine the light. Beloved, listen to me. Give your candidate your vote, yes. But don't give them your heart. Give them their vote. Do not give them your heart. Because I will promise you this. They'll break your heart. Give him your vote, don't give him your vote. Listen to a, a quote from David Platt out of this book before you vote. He said, there's only one leader who is worthy of our hearts. Including our trust, allegiance, and hope. He is the son of man whom, with whom there is salvation. And his name is, say it with me, Jesus. Isn't that refreshing when you're about sick of seeing campaign ads? In a world with the history of competing leaders, Jesus claims the kingship, 
far outstrip any others, and his kingdom is radically different than all earthly kingdoms. Are you a citizen of his kingdom? If you are, then let me encourage you, us, together, beloved, devote the lion's share of your your time, your energy, your resources to the work of the gospel, to that which will last forever. Jesus is our only lasting hope, beloved. And I close with, there there was an article that John Piper wrote, and I'm only going to read the section that is written to pastors. I read it to you, and here we are. We're about 15 years in in ministry here. And what I want you to discern and weigh out is based on this article, based on truth, based on this message, are we on point? Are we off point? Is the pulpit on point, or is it off in the woods? Are we here for God, or do we believe it's backwards, and God, you are here for us like a genie in a lamp? Because there's a lot of churches that are growing by the thousands with it flipped around. It's all about you. The greatest thing that I can tell you and deliver you of, it's not all about you. It's all about Jesus. And that's where our small stories become great, infinite, eternal stories. Listen to what Piper says to pastors. And this will help you know how to better pray for me, and for other men of God who faithfully deliver the word of God. Here's what he says, and I will read from this until I tell you he's not talking anymore. Um, This is what he says. He says, may I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses, first anarchy, then tyranny, from the right or the left. It doesn't matter. Imagine that religious freedom is gone, What remains for Christians is this, fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom His kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like believers in Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will face hate and reviling and exclusion for Jesus Christ's sake and yet... Luke 6, 22 and 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, their reward is great in heaven. Pastors, have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded Ephesians 3, 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ? Are you raising up generations of those who will say with Paul, Philippians 3.8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Have you shown them that they are, 1 Peter 2.11, sojourners and exiles, and that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. 
Do they feel in their bones that to Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or, or have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number, for the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king. End quote. Has the preaching that has come from this pulpit exalted Christ or a nation that our God and King reigns over all. Beloved, I wanted to turn from a question to a prayer of commitment that we as the people of God would say, Lord, help me. Help me to leverage, this is the summary, every opportunity. Help me not to miss opportunities of job loss, suffering, health, sickness, pain. To leverage every opportunity and not lose. Not lose my testimony. How is that going to happen? Rest in the sovereignty of God and trust him. Embrace personal responsibility and obey what he said to do. And when we trust and obey and we leave the outcome to the Lord and we do everything we can in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the word of God, then God will do what he said and he will turn the heart of the king, the president, the queen, the emperor, the dictator, and he will accomplish his panoramic view of redemption. And we get to have part in this glorious work of the gospel. Where are you struggling to trust and obey? And what's your next step in humble obedience? Take that step today, right now. Let's stand together. Oh, Father in heaven, Father, we humbly bow before you. We confess to you our sin, our struggles, our lack of obedience, our lack of humility, our lack of meekness, our lack of mourning over sin. God, we need you. I pray, O oh Lord, as we're commanded to pray, 
for our president and for our vice president. Oh God, I pray that there would be revival. I pray that there would be an awakening. I pray that there would be humility and repentance. That there would be a commitment to do what is right as defined by scripture. I pray, Lord, for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. These individuals are all made in your image. They have souls that will spend. Eternity, neither heaven or hell. And how easy it is, oh Lord, for me, for us to lose sight and to get into just debates. Father, I pray that you would bring an end to the sin of the murder of abortion. Father, I pray that you would turn. The tide of the status of homes churches in our nation and in all nations. Oh God, there's brokenness. And you see it. And you feel it and you understand it better than we do. God sent revival. And start with us. Start with me. For the glory of Christ and his gospel. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.